For this series, we've invited um, uh, a number of speakers that, that we consider particularly significant and challenging um, in the work that they're doing in their field, um, speaking uh, from a range of disciplinary specialisms and uh, uh, sort of to a variety of perspectives that both reflect and complement research interests at the Institute at the moment. And uh, Professor Robin uh, Wiegman from Duke University gave the first in this series uh, earlier this month and Professor Lauren Ballant from Chicago will be giving the third uh, in February, uh, February the 4th. Uh, but tonight we're welcoming Professor Wendy Brown, who is the uh, Emmanuel Heller Professor of Political Science at the University of California in Berkeley, uh, where she's also affiliated to the interdisciplinary graduate programs in critical theory and in women, gender, and sexuality. Wendy Brown is, I think, one of those enormously significant figures whose work's very difficult to pigeonhole because it draws, on, uh, it draws together so many different theoretical traditions, uh, including Marxism, critical theory, uh, Foucault, um, psychoanalysis, uh, I detect a touch of Hannah Arendt, um, and welds these, I think, into, into constantly surprising patterns. Uh, her books, uh, her most recent book is Regulating Aversion, which is a, a very challenging uh, reconceptualization and study of, uh, of toleration. Um, other, other works include uh, Edge Work, uh, written and uh, published in 2005, a co-edited collection on uh, left legalism, left critique, uh, the hugely influential book uh, States of Injury, which was published in 1995, which I think remains one of the really central explorations of both uh, liberalism and identity politics. Um, her work's been translated into more than a dozen languages, and collections of her essays are now appearing in French, Bulgarian, uh, Greek, Swedish, Korean, and Japanese. And she's currently working on uh, two uh, substantial projects. One's on Marx's the relationship between Marx's critique of religion uh, to his critique of capitalism. Um, and then the project which she'll be talking to us um, from tonight, uh, which is on contemporary nation-state walling, um, considered through the lens of sovereignty. And, and her talk for tonight is, uh, is Desiring Walls. Uh, Wendy will uh, speak for about uh, 50 minutes, and then we should have uh, a, good, a good half hour uh, for a question and answer session. And then I hope um, as many of you as possible will be free to join us at 8 o'clock uh, in a reception uh, that we'll be holding when you can continue the conversation further. Um, so can you uh, join me now in welcoming Wendy Brown uh, to this lecture? We're delighted to have you here. And, uh... Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, to be at the LSE, uh, to be at the Gender Institute, and I want to not only thank Anne for that lovely introduction, I think I'm going to sound almost every note that you mentioned from Arendt to psychoanalysis tonight, so you put them all together. Um, I also want to thank Claire Hemmings, uh, current director of the Institute, for uh, harboring me at, and uh, having me, uh, as well as um, Maria Pereira, who has been the uh, person who has facilitated my visit from soup to nuts. So I, I thank all of you. Um, 
I want to just say a little bit about the paper I'm going to offer tonight. It's a piece of a larger work on sovereignty, walling, and democracy. And that work engages contemporary debates about sovereignty through the lens of nation-state walling. I'll be talking about that a little bit. For this talk, I gave myself the task way in advance at that moment when you promise anything, uh, when somebody says, what will you talk on six months from now? I gave myself the task of, of working on the chapter of that larger project concerning the desire for walls. And the reason was that it seemed to me that I was likely to be pushed to theorize the gendered dimensions of sovereignty and walling if I thought about the desire for walling. As it turns out, I didn't end up doing a lot of work on gender. So I made a promise that it had an aim that I didn't realize, and it's hardly the first time that has happened to a scholar. But I do want to say I'm certain the gendered dimensions are there, and I'll mention a few of them. I'll just be kind of gesturing toward them. Please come in and sit down. Um, there's surely a gendered dimension to our inherited notions of sovereignty signified by the autonomy of a bounded subject or bounded nation. And there's also surely a dimension of gender to the response to the erosion of sovereignty, walls, defenses, policing, propping, what I've elsewhere talked about as a kind of Viagra for the political and for state sovereignty. But for the most part, I'm not going to be addressing that tonight. So I welcome you in the questions to, to press the, the, the gender dimensions further than I will be doing. OK. There's a contemporary proliferation of mammoth wall building today that is starkly at odds with images of a world ever more connected and unbordered, and a world in which power and danger are increasingly miniaturized, incorporeal, fluid, networked, and detached from nations and states. Over the past two decades, just after the nearly universal celebration of the demolition of the Berlin Wall, a surprising number of nations have been building walls or fences. Best known are the US-built behemoth along its southern border and the Israeli-built wall sneaking through the West Bank. These are two projects that share technology, subcontracting, and also reference each other for legitimacy. But there are many other walls in addition to these two. Post-apartheid South Africa features a complex internal maze of walls and checkpoints and maintains a controversial electrified security barrier on its Zimbabwe border. Saudi Arabia recently finished constructing a 10-foot-high concrete post structure along its border with Yemen, which Saudis say may be followed by walling their entire country. Longer, though cruder, walls have been built by India along its borders with both Pakistan and Bangladesh. In the context of a land dispute, but officially built in the name of interdicting Islamic terrorists, Uzbekistan fenced out Kyrgyzstan in 1999, and Botswana also initiated the building of an electric fence along its border with Zimbabwe in 2003. Again, it was ostensibly to stop the spread of foot and mouth disease among livestock, but it's aimed at interdicting Zimbabwe humans as well. Brunei is walling out immigrants and smugglers coming from Limbang. There's the wall between Egypt and Gaza, brought to the world's attention last year, of course, when it was breached by Gazans in pursuit of food, fuel, and other domestic goods. And then there are walls within walls. 
Gated communities in the U.S. have sprung up everywhere, but are especially plentiful in Southern California communities near the wall with Mexico. Walls around <clears throat> Israeli settlements in the West Bank abut the security barrier. We'll just let them take care of this for a second. The previews just kind of took off on their own. We could just turn it off. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I guess I need a, an announcement. Okay. Um, walls around Israeli settlements in the West Bank abut the security barrier, as walls around the disputed Museum of Tolerance site in Jerusalem nestle next to walls partitioning that city. The European Union sponsors triple layer walls around Spanish enclaves in Morocco, even as Morocco itself maintains a lengthy berm aimed at securing the resources of the long-disputed Western Sahara. And in the name of preventing what he called French situations, the socialist mayor of Padua recently built the Via Anelli Wall to separate white middle-class neighborhoods from the so-called African ghetto where most new immigrants live. More walls are coming. Notwithstanding the dust-up last year over a proposed Baghdad wall, the U.S. military still hopes to wall the territory marked by the Green Line in that city. Israel plans to replace an old fence with a security barrier across its Sinai Desert border with Egypt. Thailand is planning a concrete wall along its Malaysian border. The United Arab Emirates is designing a wall for its Oman border. Kuwait wants a wall in the demilitarized zone approximating its border with Iraq. And Pakistan intends to wall off its border with Afghanistan. Serious proposals have been floated to follow completion of the U.S.-Mexico wall with a wall along the U.S. border with Canada and also to find a means of walling the ocean passage between North Africa and Spain or simply to wall off the islands that provide that conduit. Now these walls clearly vary in what they aim to deter. In some cases, poor people, workers, asylum seekers, drugs, weapons, or other contraband, smuggled taxable goods, kidnapped or enslaved youth, terror, ethnic or religious mixing, peace, and other political futures. But surely there are common dimensions to the sheer proliferation of walling at this moment in history. The thesis I've developed at length elsewhere, and that I'll actually be wrapping out at Birkbeck next week, giving uh, a different chapter of this work, is that these walls are best understood as responses to weakening nation-state sovereignty. And by this, I do not mean that nation-states or sovereignty are coming to an end. Rather, today, as many have argued, sovereignty is increasingly detaching from states, even as on the one hand, states remain important actors within globalization, and on the other hand, a number of characteristics classically associated with sovereignty are increasingly manifested by two transnational powers that the Peace of Westphalia consecrating state sovereignty originally emerged to contain. Those two powers are transnational religious forces and transnational political economic forces, capital. So states and sovereignty are coming apart from one another, but neither is finished as a power form. Rather, what we confront today is states without evident sovereignty and crucial domains, and sovereignty coming to lodge in a variety of powers other than states. What's the implication for walls? Through this framing, I suggest first that contemporary nation-state walls are not 
resurgent expressions of nation-state sovereignty in late modernity, but rather icons of its deterioration. To the extent that walls are hyperbolic to tokens of nation-state sovereignty, like all hyperbole, they reveal a tremulousness, a vulnerability or dubiousness, an instability at the core of what they aim to express. And these qualities, of course, are themselves antithetical to sovereignty, and thus part of sovereignty's undoing. Secondly, I argue that notwithstanding their strikingly physicalist and obdurate dimensions, in many ways the new walls function theatrically. They project power and efficacy that they do not actually exercise. Walls help to produce an imago of sovereign state power in the face of its diminished condition. They also consecrate the corruption, violation, and contestation of the very borders that they limb or invent. My third thesis in here is that the new nation-state walls are part of a haphazard global landscape of flows and barriers inside nation-states, surrounding post-national constellations, and dividing richer from poorer parts of the globe. This landscape of flows and barriers together signifies the ungovernability by law and politics of the many powers unleashed by neoliberal globalization. And it signifies as well a resort to blockading, policing, and militarization, as well as vigilantism in the face of this ungovernability. As I said, I, I developed these arguments in detail elsewhere, and today I'm simply going to be assuming them, which is kind of maddening, as I inquire into the desire for walling in the face of walling's inefficacy vis-a-vis -vis its putative aims. So my, my project today is to think about why people want walls when walls basically don't work. What do I mean? While walling has many substantive effects on political identity and subjectivity, it does little to actually stop the illegal migration, drug smuggling, or terrorism that it most frequently is animated by and legitimated by. The reason for this is simple. Immigrants, drugs, and terrorists are not entering nations because land borders are lax, and they are not halted, though they may be rerouted and otherwise transformed by border fortifications. Walls may augment the technologies, cost, social organization, experiences, and meanings of what they purport to lock out, but they rarely work as interdiction. But don't some walls attain their publicly declared aims? Hasn't Israel built such a wall? True, the Israeli wall, in combination with multiplied and fortified checkpoints and a complex network of roads, bridges, and tunnels aimed at surgically separating Palestinians from Israelis in an increasingly intricate, intimate geography. This wall may have deterred suicide bombers entering Tel Aviv, though many argue that Hamas was already committing itself to alternative paramilitary strategies and tactics even as the wall was being conceived. What is certain is that the Israeli wall has not reduced Palestinian violence and hostility toward Israel to core. It has not improved prospects for a peace settlement, and it has not generated greater international sympathy and hence political capital for Israel. Obviously, the wall has produced new political subjectivities on both sides, and it's part of a larger architecture of occupation that discursively inverts the sources and lines of violence. 
One might say that these effects, along with its redrawing of the Israel-Palestine map to include a number of West Bank Israeli settlements within Israeli territory, that all of these things are part of the policy aims of the wall. But precisely insofar as the Israeli wall is legitimated, indeed often lamented even by its proponents, solely on the grounds of making Israel more secure, and secure in particular from Palestinian hostilities, its inefficacy in this regard is striking. Building a wall has not stopped Palestinian violence toward Israel. It has altered, at best, its tactics and technologies. But Israel's the hard case for my argument. Much easier are the many walls formally aimed at interdicting migrant labor, illegal drugs, and other contraband. By most scholarly accounts, the U.S.-Mexico wall, which has now been authorized, though not fully funded, to be built across the entire 2,000-mile border, that wall, by most scholarly accounts, is a political theater piece, albeit an exceptionally expensive one in a number of respects. While labor from south of the border has been vital to North American, um, the North American economy since the building of the railroads in the West two centuries ago, Neoliberal globalization has, needless to say, dramatically increased both the quantity of this migration and also the importance of keeping it illegal. Today, northern capital requires labor that is maximally cheap and exploitable, hireable at sub-minimum wage, without benefits or regard for regulations on overtime, on health, on environment, or on safety, and easily dispatched when not needed. This kind of labor has become increasingly crucial to service, construction, and manufacturing sectors, and not only agriculture. Thus, we get, for example, the irony of the Golden State Fence Company, a firm building a portion of the border wall in Southern California, which was charged three times over 10 years with having hundreds of undocumented workers on its payroll. Or, parallel irony, a protest by women of one Israeli settlement concerned that the proposed route of the wall blocked access to their homes by their housemaids coming from a neighboring Palestinian village. The story is similar with drugs. As Europeans seem to recognize a little more readily than North Americans, drug smuggling does not drive drug use. Rather, the demand for drugs pulls the supply. Several large studies, including one by the Rand Corporation, have shown that to reduce drug demand in the North, substance abuse treatment yields far more bang for the buck than border reinforcements. The main effect of border reinforcements is to increase drug prices. But what sells politically are walls and elaborate sting operations, not drug rehabilitation facilities, let alone addressing the social conditions generating drug markets in North American ghettos. But more than simply failing, walls often compound the problems they putatively address. First, because walling and other border intensifications make migration more difficult and expensive, they tend to increase one-directional migration, thus enlarging the numbers of illegal migrants who come to live permanently in the U.S. or Europe, rather than risk semi-annual border crossings. Second, walling tends to produce an ever more sophisticated and mafia-like smuggling economy, which, one which increasingly merges drug and migrant smuggling. 
Drugs are buried in the heart of difficult-to-inspect shipping cargo. Elaborate tunnel systems are built. In the U.S. case, 40 such tunnel systems have been discovered at the site of the U.S.-Mexico border since 2002. And some of these are complete with air conditioning, phone systems, running water. Sometimes the tunnels go from a warehouse in Mexico up into uh, arrive at a warehouse um, on the U.S. side. Boats are used in place of overland routes, and smugglers often cut holes in less monitored parts of fences, which they then gate, privatize, and police against use by other smugglers. So first, walling um, tends to make migration one-dimensional, one-directional. Second, um, it tends to um, produce an ever more sophisticated smuggling industry. Third, border intensifications and responses to them tend to render the border itself an increasingly violent space. In the U.S. case, migrants are often left by their smugglers to die of thirst and exposure in the desert or abandoned to suffocate in the backs of vans or trucks. And smugglers themselves are increasingly armed and violent. In 2007 alone, there were 340 documented assaults on California Border Patrol agents. These were attacks with weapons ranging from nail-studded planks to Molotov cocktails. Meanwhile, border towns, once relatively peaceful, if um, impoverished and unhappy places, have become garrisons, complete with lookout towers for smugglers built on tops of houses, to which the Border Patrol responds in turn with elaborate all-night floodlight systems that make these towns look like concentration camps. The Border Patrol has also resorted to firing pepper spray and tear gas into the towns to rout the smugglers. In short, what was until recently, until the building of the wall, a more laconic and less dangerous cat-and-mouse game between Border Patrol and illegals now resembles something closer to a scene of permanent guerrilla warfare and counterinsurgency. Border fortifications also multiply other outlaw elements. Again, using the U.S. as an example, well-organized vigilante groups frustrated with state laxity or inefficacy have undertaken to police the border on their own. The most famous um, group is called the Minutemen. Their efforts are countered in turn by organized progressive activists who dub themselves angels, who deposit maps and water for migrants trying to make their way across the mountains and deserts on their own. Angered vigilante groups, in turn, collect these materials and replace them with toxic ones, foul water, misleading maps. But the state, too, is implicated in a heightened lawlessness related to border space and activity. In the US, the Real ID Act of 2005 allowed the Department of Homeland Security to waive any and all laws necessary to ensure expeditious constructions of barriers and roads. And that meant over 30 laws were set aside, ranging from environmental protections to Native American sovereignty provisions. Then the Secure Fence Act of 2006 went a step further and permitted the direct violation of private property rights to build the border barrier. So walling projects, standing for law and order associated with sovereignty and democracies, not only generate new non-state rogue actors, but licenses rogue states. In short, walls and harsh controls where penetration is inevitable have as their main effects the production of borders as permanent zones of violent conflict and lawlessness um, that themselves spell or signal a weakened sovereignty, the development of sophisticated and dangerous underground industries, and expansions in the size and expense of the problems at which they are aimed. 
I focused in these examples primarily on the US-Mexico wall, but it's easy enough to extend the analysis to Europe and other efforts at walling out the third world, or even efforts such as those limiting certain nations in Africa and South Asia to, to wall out more poor from less poor parts of the third world. So why build walls? What generates such strong popular passions for walling and what's the state's own investment in these icons to and of failure? The failure of nation-state sovereignty followed by the literal failure of the walls that would prop this faltering sovereignty. If one quasi-psychoanalytic answer suggests the I know but still structure of the fetish, that is, I know they don't really work but still they satisfy, this begs the question of what the desire is that the fetish harbors. When there's a loosening of the enclosing folds of the nation and growing limits on the protective capacities of the state, what kinds of political wishes for potency, for protection, and for containment do walls express? What do they ward off or repress? What kind of psychic political defenses might walls emblematize? What religious resonances or optics of sovereignty might they sound or figure? How might walls serve as a set of national psychic defenses, as prophylactics against confrontation with internal or domestic ills, or as projections onto others and an elsewhere of a nation's own needs, dependencies, and hungers? To this end, what political economic logics do walls rhetorically invert or reverse? And what kinds of threatened or compromised identities, that of the subject or that of the nation, might be generating the desire for walling. Apart from containment or protection, what fantasies of national purity and national innocence might animate the desire for walls? So what I want to do now is first speculate about these questions under the rubric of uh, four historically specific kind of, I'll call them national fantasies. And then I want to make a final and brief turn to psychoanalysis to try to deepen and ground those speculations. So the first national fantasy that I want to talk about is the projection of danger from the alien in an increasingly borderless world. In the US post-war, I'm sorry, in the US post-Cold War context, the border has been discursively constructed as a point of entry for a set of heterogeneous threats to the nation. But these threats are increasingly merged into a single figure of alien danger. While Tom Ridge, the first head of the Department of Homeland Security, the department established in the aftermath of 9-11 in 2001, while he declared the border, quote, a conduit for terrorists, weapons of mass destruction, illegal migrants, contraband, and other unlawful commodities, it was a Colorado congressman who exemplified the conjoining of these elements. We can't protect ourselves from terrorism, he proclaimed, without dealing with illegal immigration. And post 9-11 popular discourse in the US, especially that arguing for completion of the US-Mexico border wall, also merges all of these elements. Terrorists love open borders. Remember 9-11 is the billboard motto for the Minutemen campaign to finish walling the border. Thus, our disparate political and economic phenomena combined in an anxiety about national permeability by alien elements, an anxiety in which the alien as such is constituted as a danger. 
Collapsing the threat of imagined Islamist terror and labor migration, this merging and constitution not only eschews the northern demand for cheap and unprotected labor, but the fact that most US terrorist events have been homegrown. There's the Unabomber, the uh, Oklahoma Federal Building Bomber, Timothy McVeigh, Bruce Ivins, the Army microbiologist who was responsible for the anthrax attacks after September 11th, and then, of course, a host of school and workplace shooters and bombers. Importantly, the discourse of walling and the fantasy that it holds out of being able to seal off the nation from the outside facilitates these occlusions. It produces an anthropomorphized other as the cause of national woes ranging from dilutions of ethnicized national identity to drug use, crime, and declining real wages. Internal disintegration and lawlessness is recast as an external threat. The nation is under assault and needs to bunker itself against what Patrick Buchanan in a uh, best-selling screed against immigration called the third world invasion. This leads us to the second fantasy I want to just briefly muse on, the fantasy of containment. The projection of danger onto the alien both draws on and fuels a fantasy of containment for which walls are of course the perfect icon. The protective walls of the home are now extended to the nation, taking to a parodic height Hannah Arendt's argument that the displacement of the political by the social in modernity produces the nation in the image of a giant household. In the face of an increasingly unbounded and uncontrolled global order, walls figure containment that exceeds mere protection against frightening figures as they address the psychic unmanageability of existing in such a world. Indeed, the need for containment, the impossibility of living without horizons, is a theme sounded by a number of 19th and 20th century thinkers. For Nietzsche, you'll recall, he writes, a living thing can be healthy, strong, and fruitful only when it is bounded by a horizon. For Freud, loss of containment is a road to psychosis reminding us why virtual fences made of sensors and screening devices, while often more effective than mammoth concrete barriers, are not as subjectively satisfying and politically desirable. Similarly, in his critique of the impulse to develop a world picture, Heidegger writes, shelter is provided by the horizon's ability to turn the threatening world of the outside into a reassuring picture. So walling in this respect would appear to phantasmatically produce such shelter when the actual boundaries of the nation no longer appear containing. Let me press this a little further. If in a Westphalian order, the state is the container for the nation and state sovereignty is something like the hard metal of this container, then it's unsurprising that one form taken by contemporary nationalisms is a demand for a re-articulated state sovereignty through visible signs of its containing powers. Intact state sovereignty achieves a semblance of bounded national composition and order without hyperbolic border iteration, militarization, or bordering. It, it, intact state sovereignty orders through its structuring and ubiquitous presence, through the charisma of sovereignty, and above all, through the monopoly, monopoly of violence it has, and the fusion of nation, state, and sovereign. Thus does Ashil Mbembe formulate the detachment of sovereignty from the state as, in his words, an emasculation of the state, one that he argues parallels the late modern decimation of familial patriarchalism and one that's compensated in both cases 
by a certain phallic militarism, a fetish of guns. From a different angle, the call for heavy st state iteration of national boundaries would appear to be a crucial element in what Saskia Sassen terms the renationalizing of political discourses corresponding to denationalized economic space. So boundary iteration and defense stages both the righteousness and possibility of such renationalization against its contemporary undoing. So, so declining state sovereignty and the disappearing viability of a heterogeneous national imaginary both redress each other at the site of the wall. Walls respond to the need for containment and boundaries in too global a world. They produce a spatially demarcated us, local identity and scale, at the very moment when this can no longer be furnished from demographic homogeneity, common history and values, national economies, or the increasingly unbounded material of the social and the political in the 21st century. Okay, so the third fantasy I want to talk about for a second is, is the fantasy of impermeability. If containment within an increasingly boundaryless world is one kind of psychic longing animating the desire for walls, impermeability, perhaps even impenetrability, appears as another. Sovereign state power carries the fantasy of absolute limits between the inside and the outside, us and them, defines spatial porousness as well as temporal interruption or multivalence. The sovereign can be attacked but not penetrated without being undone. The sovereign can be challenged but not suspended without being toppled. And in these respects, sovereignty may be this supremely masculinist political formation or fantasy. But it's also significant that discourses of walling or fortressing in the US, Europe, and Israel produce the entity at stake as at once vulnerable, victimized, righteous, and powerful. The nation is in danger, under siege, but capable of defending against this siege and eminently right to do so. Now here it might be useful to remember that the walls of the pre-modern city, the walls that still are scattered about in ruins in Europe, were mostly built against sieges for plunder, not as fortresses against political military conquest. The siege was a routine economic phenomenon quite different from war, but the blending of military and economic elements in the siege facilitates an appreciation of how defenses against migration today so easily acquire a security aspect in contemporary walling discourse. A nation under siege justifies defenses and blockades even, against, even in the context of NAFTA-type agreements on the one hand or military and terrorist technologies impervious to walling on the other. Indeed, Palestinians flooding Egypt last year through the breached Gaza wall solely to purchase food and fuel and other domestic supplies might be seen as a kind of siege in reverse. Even terror, though not economically driven, may be better understood along the lines of siege than war. Yet because the siege is presumed to have passed from history with the emergence of the modern nation state, it's a non-theorized phenomenon within liberalism. And I think that's one reason that walls and their purposes lack any lexicon or grammar in liberal theory. But my larger point is that the defense that walls establish against siege 
works the fantasy of impermeability into a psychic politics that figures the enemy as a raiding, invading one, coming to get what is rightfully ours, our safety and security, our peaceful and prosperous way of life, our jobs, our wealth, our first world privilege. And as I shall suggest next, an enemy also, the, the, the invading enemy is also tearing at our psychic political insulation from the hierarchies and violences in the webs of dependency that sustain the first world. So now I want to turn to the fourth fantasy I just want to speculate about a little bit, and that's fantasies of, of purity and innocence and, and goodness in the nation. <clears throat> Saving lives. Israel's anti-terrorist fence answers to questions is an Israeli government public relations document written in English, clearly for foreign consumption, that gently rebukes criticisms of the wall and calmly explains its rationale. The document depicts the barrier as a fence rather than a wall. 97% of the fence is not concrete, it declares four times in the context of a thousand words. It also depicts the barrier as apolitical and unrelated to the question of negotiating a settlement or boundaries. It depicts it as temporary and movable in accord with negotiations and an end to Palestinian violence. And it depicts it as built entirely on the humanitarian grounds of preserving and nurturing life. The document presents both the policy architects and contractors building the wall as deeply concerned with life and livelihoods on both sides of the barrier. All involved in planning and building the wall, it reports, have been careful to treat Palestinians, their lands, and villages with respect and consideration. The rationale for the wall is similarly framed. Israel, it says, effectively, is a tiny, humane, democratic nation victimized by barbaric neighbors who must be walled out unless and until those neighbors change their terrible ways. The wall, in short, is depicted as preserving innocence and civilization against its opposite, and as standing in every way for humane and life-preserving values against barbaric and murderous ones. The many websites promoting the US-Mexico wall are similar, if somewhat less sophisticated. Porous borders permit the flow of drugs, crime, and terror into a civilized nation whose only crime, one website suggests, has been to be too prosperous, too generous, too tolerant, too open, and too free. In both cases, the Israel and the Mexico example, Walling gratifies a desire, I want to suggest, for a national imago of goodness, rhetorically externalizing the nation's ills and suppressing its unlovely needs, dependencies, and dominations. In this regard, the desire for walling seems to respond in part to a time in which structural inequalities and dependencies between North and South, rich and poor, settler and native, white and colored, have been spatially desegregated and normatively challenged, but not thereby undone. That is, while discourses justifying natural hierarchies, colonialism, and extreme structural inequalities have perhaps lost some of their easy hegemony, Global movements of people and capital have also eroded the separations among the populations that these stratifications produce. Today, rich and poor, colonized and native, first and third world live virtually and actually in ever greater proximity. So the unlivable paradox, a world of extreme and intimately lived inequality deprived of strong legitimating discourses. For this 
for the predicament that this produces for those wanting to conceive themselves as justice-minded and good, or at least innocent, Walling offers several discursive exits. Depicting what it blocks as lawless invaders, it literally screens out a confrontation with structural inequality and denies the dependency of the privileged within that structure. In its representation of a danger that has to be deflected, it converts the subordinate and exploitable into a dangerous threat, one neither produced by nor connected to the needs of the dominant. Rewriting dependency as autonomy, the wall replaces webs of social relations with the fiction of autarky. So optically and psychically, at the very moment that global demographics and economics undermine ontologized separations, Walling resurrects ontological ascriptions of goodness and victimization to the dominant and sinister agency to the subordinate. It neatly organizes that binary with a literal divider. All right, so now I want to turn briefly to two strands of psychoanalytic theory in the hopes of giving a little bit of an analytic firmament to these speculations about the desire for walling. And um, I promise it will be brief uh, and that there won't be much talk of, of, um, of sex um, and because I'm taking liberties with the psychoanalytic work that I'm uh, engaging with. Uh, which is to say I'm taking the arguments that the psychoanalytic theorists I'll be dealing with make and detaching them from their specific concerns um, with sexual anxiety. You'll see how this goes. One of the strands I want to work with is the theory of defense offered in some early papers by Freud and then extended by Anna Freud in a little work called The Ego and Mechanisms of Defense. And the other strand of psychoanalysis I'll be drawing on is Freud's account of the desire for religion in uh, the little book, Future of an Illusion. In his papers on the neuropsychosis of defense, Freud argues that defenses arise in response to anxiety about something distressing, which he calls an idea, though the idea really comprises a kind of ideational version of a desire or experience. So defenses arise in response to anxiety about something dis distressing. Freud posits a dialectical relation between defense and repression in these early papers. On the one hand, defense entails repressing the distressing material. On the other hand, Freud says, repression at Self is a form of defense. Now, this is important because the defense is not aimed only at the idea that is being repressed, but also at its energy. Defense is the means by which the source and nature and energy of the anxiety is repressed. So the ego defends itself not just against unwanted content coming from the id, but against the energy or affect of the unwanted contact. And that's why repression is both an act and an effect. Okay, let me try to rehearse the logic here. Defense hysteria, Freud says, differs from what he calls hypnoid and retention hysteria because defense hysteria involves attempting to deny or repel a distressing experience or desire that is producing a contradiction or a shock for the ego. The task the ego has, Freud says, is to make the incompatible idea non arrivée that is not to have come at all. That's the task for the ego, is to make the distressing idea or experience not to have arrived. 
The task is first carried out by turning the powerful idea into a weak one, which is accomplished through conversion of the idea into an obsession, which Freud says lodges in consciousness like a parasite. But if a fresh impression like the original, quoting Freud, breaks through the barrier erected by the will, and note the invasion and walling metaphors here, which I'll treat in a moment, the weakened idea, the thing that's being repressed, defended against, is furnished with fresh affect, so then a further conversion is needed, which ultimately takes hold, Freud says, as a defense. So first you have the, the uh, obsession, and then you get the proper defense. But even when the defense is established, Freud says, it's unstable and gives rise to episodic hysterical attacks. So we've got defense that um, has as uh, sub-elements obsession and hysteria, all of which are clearly present around walling. Now, if conversion is not possible, the idea, the unwanted idea, a desire that one has or an experience one has, is fended off, Freud says, only by separating it from its affect. And then you get obsessions or phobias unrelated to reality. So Freud identifies two possibilities for the ego's response to unacceptable desire or experience. Complete conversion to another idea, defense, which produces periodical hysterical outbursts but wholly suppresses the original anxiety, or conversion of the energy of the desire into a phobia. Both of these, he insists, are modalities of protecting the ego against ideas that conflict with its idea of itself. They protect the ego from being disturbed in its self-understanding. Now, what if the unacceptable ideas producing the desire for walling and generating hysteria about permeability, immigrants, or terror include one or more of the following? The limited capacity for containment exercised by the nation state today, the crumbling of sovereign protection, the declining power and supremacy of the Euro-Atlantic world and attendant loss of status for working and middle classes, the erosion of national identity based on shared language and culture, the reliance of Euro-Atlantic prosperity on the production of an impoverished outside, and perhaps above all, a Euro-Atlantic existence full of crime, drugs, violence, ennui, depression, and anxious about losing its economic, political, cultural supremacy. The hysterical obsession is the alien, comprising and merged into a single figure, immigrants, criminals, drug traffickers, and terrorists. The phobia is xenophobia. Walls perform a psychic defense against recognition of a set of internal or systemic failures relocated to the outside and against recognition of a set of unacceptable facts of dependency and unprotected vulnerability corresponding to declining sovereign power in a globalized world. Walling makes recognition of these failures non arrivé, just as it literally aims to make migrants and terrorists not to have ever arrived. And building the walls themselves becomes obsessional, just as the Minutemen's tracking of illegal entrance is, is obsessional. The convergence of unprotected vulnerability resulting from sovereign decline amidst globalized economics and global terror produces a national egoic response that actively seeks literal defenses to prop up psychic ones or spurs the construction of literal defenses in the production of psychic ones. Now, in a little book called The Ego and Mechanisms of Defense, Freud's daughter, Anna, 
sought to extend and systematize her father's theory of defense. The most important of her additional hypotheses for our purposes are these. First, she says repression is most valuable for combating sexual wishes, while other defense mechanisms, and she lists about nine, better serve other instinctual forces, especially against aggressive impulses. Her second useful hypothesis is this. She says it's always anxiety that sets the defensive process into motion, superegoic anxiety, objective anxiety, or ego anxiety about the sheer strength of the instincts. And thirdly, she says, with defense, the ego is always seeking to repudiate part of its own id, and defenses are designed to secure the ego and above all to save it from experiencing pain, pain which might arise from within or might come from the outside world. Now before drawing these theses toward the question of the desire for walling, I want to highlight a rhetorical aspect of her analysis, one that we already glimpsed in Father Freud, namely Anna Freud's heavy reliance on spatial and especially um, boundary and walling metaphors in describing the uh, psychoanalytics of defense. Listen to how she sets up the whole problem of defenses. On their way to gratification, the id impulses, she writes, must pass through the territory of the ego, and here they are in an alien atmosphere. The id's instinctual impulses make hostile incursions into the ego, and in the hope of overthrowing it, the ego becomes suspicious and counterattacks, invading the territory of the id. It also builds appropriate defense measures designed to secure its own boundaries. But now, the id is modified by a defensive measure on the part of the ego. So Anna Freud formulates the id-ego relation as struggles over territorial boundaries and defenses through which self and other, identity and alien, are performatively brought into being and negotiated. Indeed, her account of the psyche recalls Schmidt's insistence on no, in Nomos of the Earth that, quoting Schmidt, in the beginning, all law was land appropriation. Yet Anna Freud also postulates inevitable boundary breaches. The impulses of the id, she says, must pass through the territory of the ego. And these boundary breaches produce the necessity of defense and transform both the transgressor and the transgressed. So the landscape she's describing is one of incessant hostilities, attacks, and counterattacks over territory. And it's also a land in which literally what is being produced are defensive measures against threats to identity that in turn produce identity itself. Indeed, what does the ego, the, the conscious moi, become consequent to these battles? The defended ego, she writes, takes the form of bodily attitudes such as stiffness and rigidity, a fixed smile, contempt, irony, or arrogance. Defenses, in other words, paradoxically produce a fragility and brittleness which, borrowing from Reich, Anna Freud identifies as an armor plating of character and which more than merely attaching to the ego transforms the ego, transforms identity itself. Hegel's shadow is discernible here as defenses come to reduce the resiliency and flexibility, hence the very power, the, the adeptness, the creativity of the, of the entity they're, they're built to secure, and you can see that paradoxical effect in the state of Israel today. Moreover, the ego constructed thus will inevitably resist not just the impulses that develop the capacity to repel, but analysis itself, 
Defense, of course, is the main problem for the psychoanalyst. Getting through someone's defenses is, is the, is the uh, chief project. But I want to suggest that we're not just talking about psychoanalysis here, because what Anna Freud is reminding us is that um, the defended entity will, will repel analysis in the sense of any self-reflexivity. So the ego comes to be defined and not just protected by defenses, and thus fiercely resists submitting them to any kind of reflexive or critical undoing. Now, if defenses are always attempts to secure the subject against pain from external sources and from its own unacceptable desires, walls may be seen as defending the identity, the purity, and the strength of the nation the imagined identity, purity, and strength of the nation against qualities that are disturbing these. As efforts by the ego to repudiate part of its own id, walls rhetorically reverse and displace threats to national identity, threats ranging from the disavowed predicates of its own existence to what Freud called the strengths of its own instincts. These would include, in the US case, Mexican and Central American labor and various effects of neoliberalism, which together degrade the boundaries as well as the ethnic cultural homogeneity of the nation and affront the nation's conceits of equality, universality, and fairness. The Israeli wall clearly does something similar, albeit with the colonial native rather than the laborer figured now as persecutor or invader. Emanating from and contributing to a discourse of Israeli civility in a barbarous environment, the wall discursively reverses the aggression, generating the enemy, enmity it would repel, producing as well an ever more militarized, checkpointed existence for all. The wall hardens Israel's defensive, besieged, and defended condition into identity and character inside and out. In sum, considered as a form of national psychic defense, walls I'm speculating here help to repress a set of unmanageable appetites, needs, and powers. They facilitate a set of metalepsies in which the specter of invasion replaces the specter of need or desire and deflects the anxiety of national identity disintegration. Walls also suppress anxiety about the decline of state sovereignty through their ostentatious signification of sovereign power. Indeed, they spectacularize a hyper-identity of the nation in response, I'm suggesting, to a certain anxiety about the detachment of sovereignty from the nation state and globalization's dilution of the nation. And there would seem to be a particularly masculinist inflection to walling as a defense against these anxieties about need, vulnerability, penetrability, and this wish for sovereign containment and protection. And what I mean is, to the extent that vulnerability and penetrability are coded feminine, and sovereign supremacy and powers of containment and protection are coded masculine, the desire for walling would seem to emanate from both a wish for deliverance from a feminized national subject condition amidst globalization, and deliverance from a masculated state power and yet also perhaps emanate from a certain identification with sovereign power. In short, Walling defends against a sovereign failure identified with a demasculinized or penetrated nation and defends as well against the exposure of national dependency and needfulness. Very briefly and by way of conclusion, I want to 
turn the question of the desire for walling to Freud's reflections on the human need for religion. This strand of Freud's thinking, his, his thinking about the human need for religion, contributes to an appreciation of the theological dimensions of sovereignty, dimensions articulated most famously by Schmidt. Schmidt, you'll recall, insists that all political concepts derive from or descend from theological concepts. And, and Schmidt formulates political sovereignty as imitating God's power, supreme, temporally infinite, etc. Now elsewhere, I've developed the argument that the theological face of state sovereignty becomes resurgent at the moment of its waning. And that's the argument I want to press through Freud for just a minute now. In Future of an Illusion, Freud follows other 19th century German critics of religion in arguing that religion arises from an unbearable experience of human vulnerability and dependency vis-a-vis -vis the natural and the social world. Freud's distinctive contribution to this critique, lots of people, Feuerbach and others, are making this argument, but Freud's distinctive contribution to this critique involves positing our experience of vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis the natural and social world as one which recalls a condition he terms infantile helplessness. If religion is born of man's terrible vulnerability to fate, suffering, forces of nature, and so forth, for Freud, this vulnerability resonates psychically with that early informative experience of being an infinite, infant. Consequently, he says, religion always produces a god who is at once frightening and a source of protection. That is, God replicates the unique dual character of parents for the infant, who are both sources of fear and protection. Thus, Freud argues, religion acknowledges our helplessness, even as it is also a strategy to overcome its humiliation with an anthropomorphized figure of protection. So what in God's name does this argument have to do with walling? To the extent that walls optically gratify a wish for intact sovereign awe and protection. The desire for walling, I think, has an evident theological dimension. The idea of sealing ourselves off from a dangerous outside appears animated by a yearning to resolve the vulnerability and helplessness produced by myriad global forces coursing through nations. The fantasy that the state can and will provide this resolution of vulnerability thus reconvenes a strong theological version of state sovereignty. The desire for national walling carries, I think, this theological wish, and the wall visually gratifies it. As ancient temples housed gods in an unhorizoned and overwhelming landscape, nation-state walls today appear as modern temples housing the ghost of nation-state sovereignty religiously conferring protection and deflection from powers incomprehensibly huge, corrosive, and beyond human control. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, so, oh, 
we now have uh, about half an hour for a question and answer session. I'll just give a couple of minutes for people who have to leave now to leave. Do we have ro roving mics? Is there one, is it two or just, yeah. Um, the acoustics here are reasonably good, but still it makes sense for you to wait till a microphone has come to you uh, before you ask your question. And could I ask people to, when they, when they ask their questions, to uh, just say briefly who they are and remember to ask a question rather than give another lecture. <laughs> um, this, uh, the shape of this desk is difficult, so um, I think I'd better stand up and to identify who's here. So who would like to ask the first question? Yes? Yeah, okay. Hello. Um, do you mind if I ask two? If you ask two. Two okay? short questions. Okay. Uh, or one big one. Okay. Uh, I guess my first question was, does it matter who builds the wall? Um, meaning that over time, it becomes a wall for both sides. and how that, Over time what? Over time, it becomes a wall for both sides. Um, and so whether there's something to be said for laying the first stone and what that means. Um, and in a sort of way that um, I'm using Mike Rogan's language when I say it's like demonizing, political demonology. So I'm wondering if you think that language fits here. Um, and the other question I had was about the obsessional characteristic of us and Waltz um, and whether or not that's related to the fact that a lot of the times we're building walls against sort of extremism where you know there's, we have adaptive people on the other side of the wall or, or factions or whatever you want to call it where the drug trade will find a way in and so are we obsessed because it's a constantly adaptive thing that we're trying to wall out okay sometimes i think i understand both questions um i think it matters a lot who builds the wall because um it's it's almost, I was going to say very rarely, I think I could say it's never the case um, that the wall is equally desired by both sides or that there's a, that, you know, it's sort of a good fences make good neighbors kind of operation. Um, walls are usually walling out today and it's one of the distinctive features of walls today. They're, non, they're rarely walling in. It's, interestingly enough, they often become prisons for those inside them um, in a certain fashion, but they are, um, they're walling out. So it matters a lot. Um, as I've suggested in this analysis, I think it also matters a lot because there's a, a, national, a, 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 a national imaginary that is being constructed through the wall. Um, and, and on the other side of the wall, which I have not talked about at all today, and that happens in another chapter, um, Obviously, a, a national subjectivity or uh, subjectivities are being produced as well. Not always national, actually. They're, they vary. But um, uh, if the wall on one side is meant to suggest sovereign protection, on the other side, it's certainly meant to suggest sovereign aggression. In that sense, they are um, interesting icons of sovereignty, even if they don't work. Um, they are producing some kind of imago. So I think it matters a lot who builds the wall. Now, if you literally mean who's who's got the bricks and mortar in their hands. Is that, that's a more interesting question because um, in the two big walls that I talked about, the bricks and mortar are often in the hands of those who are being kept out um, because they're the cheap labor and that's the best way to get the wall built cheaply. Um, in, um, and in some other cases as well, that's been true. But um, I assume that you're asking more sort of, you know, which nation is, 
who's for it and, and why it's being built. Um, Rogan's work could be useful here in terms of demonology. Um, what I think is historically specific about Mike Rogan's work is that it was so much formed by the Cold War and so much addressed to the particular logics and dynamics of Cold War thinking. And it's not that it can't be translated or adapted, but I think a different set of logics are operative in um, a context of a set of civilizational discourses which do not have the particular binary operation of um, the Cold War and don't have that particular set of stakes. Um, so the shift from subversives to terrorists, the shift from the um, demon within and the demon under every bed, the shift from the anxiety about communism as a near cousin to capitalism um, that Rogan traces so effectively uh, has to be thought in a different register, I think, for um, what's going on today. Hi, uh, I'm Lynn Siegel. Uh, that was so uh, rich and interesting, it'll take me a little while to um, process it all. But I just wanted to ask you um, whether you would agree with me that the um, paradoxical and, and um, <clears throat> neurotic nature of the obsessive wall building today is such that um, it becomes, at the very same time, to also be witnessing the possibility of their collapse. And I think so, I think that's so in terms of the three aspects you talk about, the um, uh, staging of the danger of the alien, the need for containment, and the need for impenetra impenetrability. Well, I have many times watched in horror the building and presence of the wall in, in, uh, between Israel and the uh, Palestinian settlements, uh, uh, sorry, and the, and the occupied territory, and there is an enormous contradiction between that staging of the enemy, the presence of the alien, and the need for containment. I mean, you feel really unsafe. So there are schools, there are houses, Israeli schools and houses near those walls, and I, I, the sense of containment isn't there the sense of horror, it is a theater of war, as you say, and that is at odds with a sense of any secure containment. And in terms of impermeability, it seems to me the more you build walls, the more it's possible to say, as it's true, it's mainly the peace women, but other people too in Israel have said, we will not be enemies, we will hold hands against those walls. Humpty Dumpty falls off his walls. The more walls are built, the more you see, we can knock down those walls. Together, we can knock down those walls. And so there is something that is sort of, in the paradoxes and neurosis of it is so, is so visible that it seems to me that it does seem to almost stage the possibility of its own transcendence into some sense of global togetherness. Well, that's hopeful. <laughs> Having a little Obama moment here. <laughs> um, you began by asking if I agree with you. So I guess I have, have to begin by saying pretty much. Um, but I want to offer a caveat. Um, the description you offered of the sense that the wall is not containing 
in those places that are most proximate to the wall is replicated as well by um, people who live close to the US-Mexico border. They are not the ones calling for the wall. And so one of the things I think that is interesting and that undergirds the analysis that I'm offering is that um, this set of desires and the national imaginary and the way the wall works um, can't be brought to a kind of concrete lived existence. Uh, right next to the wall. You can't ask too closely, is the wall working? Am I made safe? Have the immigrants, the drugs, and so forth actually been stopped? It doesn't work proximate to it. And that's the what re why these walls have a kind of Wizard of Oz quality. They work at a distance. They work in the national imaginary. They work as iconography um, for... for um, political speech making, for campaigning, for, for um, uh, and let me put it bluntly in the case of Israel, for Tel Aviv, but not, not, not when you're right up next to them. When you're right up next to them, you know that what walling does is compound the violent elements that I described at too much length. Um, you know that, and, and that's why the call for border fortifications in the US, for example, does not come from those places, including those politicians who are in states who limb the border. So I take your point about the paradox of the lack of containment provided by the so-called container, that the felt lack of containment, but I, I also take the national imaginary and psychic desire for walling that I'm speaking about uh, to continue to operate in a very forceful way uh, as, as long as, as it's iconographic. I can't quite hear you, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hold on one second, somebody's bringing um, The question kind of follows on from that, which is the way, I wonder um, how exactly this, because you gave a sort of universal account then of the desire for walls, which is around this universal, and you even talked back to Nietzsche and, and so on, this, this sort of desire for containment. And I wonder then how, what psychoanalysis is exactly doing then? Because when you were in answer, in response to Lynn's question, you then seemed to be suggesting that it was sort of more metaphorical and that it was something that would mobilize some desires through political speeches and it wasn't actually to do with individual desires in this way. And I just, don't now quite understand where the psycho where the kind of unconscious register is lying then and and also those who don't then desire walls which are probably most people in this room especially since you've now explained very rationally they don't work anyway but the the if you did want them now you want something else <laughs> but the, so the, so then it's the, where does this sort of universality then how does it how does it work in terms of sort of political mobilization of the desire for walls. Great. 
Okay, so a couple of responses. One is, it's always dicey turning to psychoanalysis for a thousand reasons, and I decided not to go through the big preface about how I was gonna mangle and abuse it in order to use it. Um, and, and my view is that you just do that. You, do, you take what you need from it and you rework it and you, um, why turn to it at all? So let me start there. Um, I turn to it because for me, psychoanalysis remains not um, necessarily ever the, let me start over. Psychoanalysis remains uh, the most uh, fruitful source we have for thinking about the question of desire, including political desire. It is not, uh, of course, ever an adequate source for all the reasons that those of us who have been engaged critically with Freud over the years know. Um, it's insufficiently historically specific. It's, it's scrambled on a whole bunch of things, including gender, which is one of its central topics, et cetera. Um, it's uh, Eurocentric. It's locked into a bourgeois Victorian era, et cetera, et cetera. But I do continue to feel or to, to turn to it as a beginning point for thinking about certain problems in political desire and subjectivity, especially ones uh, that, that have the form that the desire for walling has, which, as I began by saying, I think um, is, is a desire that never wants to get up next to the question of whether walls really work, but operates much more at the level of what walls gratify psychically. So what I was trying to distinguish in my response to Lynn's question was the difference between those who are dealing very concretely with questions of immigration or drug smuggling um, or terrorism, whether they be in a political officialdom or whether they be in uh, neighborhoods and villages along borders, almost to a person such people know that walling doesn't work and are not necessarily calling for it. But then one has to ask if that's the expertise, if that's the social science as it were, and if that's also even what you find in, in those immediate border zones, um, why, why then build these enormously expensive things? And why, something I didn't address much in the talk, do you get them not only in first world nations, but why are you getting this proliferation of wall building? Why does everybody want a wall today? And there it seems to me one has to go to questions about containment, about resurrected sovereignty, or uh, the fantasy of resurrected sovereignty, um, about certain kinds of wishes or hopes uh, for a reconstituted world uh, that, that globalization has demolished. And I'm not saying that every single person has that particular psychic orientation to the wall or to walling or to defenses, but I do think that there's something fruitful in thinking the phenomenon or the paradox of walling against its inefficacy through the question of political desire and not just thinking about the desire to stop immigrants or the desire to stop drug smuggling, but thinking about what, what larger order of desire is, is satisfied or, or even is set in motion by walling. <coughs> I know that answer won't completely satisfy. I'm not, I'm not um, able on the spot to deal with the question of how far I want to take 
or what to do with the with the universal reach of psychoanalysis i'm trying to retreat from it without at the same time saying well it's only about these people and not those people and so forth but i do think that psychoanalysis itself has an account of what happens when you move from fantasy projection inversion displacement and fetish to a literal reality there's a there's there's a, usually a disjunction there that has to be resolved and psychoanalysis itself has a pretty good account of um, how, what kinds of spatial or temporal or put it this way psychic distance there has to be from certain kinds of objects of desire or fantasies uh, for them to work I know that's not satisfying that's the best I can do at the moment Angela McRobbie um, from Goldsmiths College. Uh, I really enjoyed your paper a lot, and I wonder if um, you could say something about the political consequences for, let's say, radical democracy based on this model, which at one level it seems to me to be a very pessimistic model for the, which in some ways would justify the proliferation of micro-neo-nationalisms on a fairly, on a global basis. That's one thing that I take from your paper. The second thing that I take from it is that you see this model of these defense systems and these walls as providing a means of, if you like, um, buoying up and re-gridding the first world and the third world, and I think that's, that's a kind of new way of a new geopolitics mm -hmm. of, of, um, of uh, stabilizing a new kind of first world against a third world. And so my question, my political question then is, okay, what about the second world? What about the Iron Curtain? What about the kind of political resources that could be mobilized, which would be, which would produce some kind of radical democracy through weak states? or through uh, exposure to others, or to uh, the, not the strong micro small state, which is really, in a sense, what you're envisaging. So if you apply your model to uh, Europe, for example, or to uh, the new Europe opened up by the EU, um, all one can see is kind of more small, tiny states, whether it's Chechnya, Georgia, or South Ossetia, or wherever, uh, with their kind of religious desires, of course, also respected. So I'm just wondering what kind of political resources or what kind of fantasies or imaginaries would one want, could one possibly have, as well as political resources, to counter this very kind of um, blanket global gridding along these lines of a kind of you know, walls, iron curtains or, or so on. I gather there was a related question in that corner, is that right? Well, I don't know if it's related. Okay, then we'll leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. it, it came up at the yes. same moment. So I'll, I'll just, um, I don't, uh, I, I, I want to ask you to say two more sentences. What are you meaning by radical democracy?
through weakness. Yeah. Through through the through the rhetoric of having been excluded or or weak. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's a big question. Yes. Um, The reason I asked for a little more elaboration on radical democracy is that um, one of the things that thinking about sovereignty and walling has done to my own considerations of the problem of democracy and its future, if there is one, is recognizing that um, this desire for containment, which can take extreme xenophobic and nationalistic, nationalistic turns, but also can take the direction of um, the desire for um, spaces for power sharing that have to be contained, that have to have some kind of limb, that have to have that they cannot that cannot simply. Um, uh, uh, exist on a global scale. You can't share power on a global scale. So uh, one of the little corners that I've been thinking in, um, apart from the Walling Sovereignty Project, is w what the implications are for thinking about radical democracy from the negative model that walled democracy produces. I mean, that's obviously a very negative model. Walled democracy sounds like almost a contradiction in terms, especially in an age of imperial democracy. And that's one of the great you know, sort of paradoxes of the moment that um, here, uh, um, the, at least uh, regimes of, of, of imperialism of the last eight years now, perhaps, maybe, perhaps brought to a close, um, have been hell-bent on spreading democracy around the world at the same time walling it. And um, so then there's the question of what kind of walls democracy thinks it requires, but then there's the question of what kind of um, spaces, radical contestations for another way of doing democracy and thinking about democracy might require. And I worry here because I think that most of us I'm going to go back to Lynn's question. Uh, in this room, somehow would like to th imagine that um, it is possible to have an unbordered world in which um, there is still the possibility of power sharing, which I take to be the deep sense of democracy, human beings sharing in power. Um, and not just voting or resisting or rebelling or speaking against it, but actually sharing power. And the worry I have is an old Rousseauian worry. <laughs> I think that the bigger the space, the less possibility for democracy. So one worry I have actually from this project is, is that. I think your question comes from a slightly different direction though, so that was a long preface to getting to your question. Um, which is uh, the question about those expressions of, how should we put it, resistance to power concentrations 
in those of neoliberalism, those of rule by experts, and so forth. Um, those formations clearly can operate without containment and against the idea of walling fairly easily. I just don't know that I want to treat that as exhaustive of or even fundamentally constitutive of radical democracy. They are protests against a hijacking of democracy for its, uh, against a hijacking of, of the term and the practice of democracy for its opposite. But I don't know that I want to call them democratic because they're they're, they're protests, as you say, they're protests from the weekend. That doesn't mean they're anti-democratic, I just don't think of it as yet. Democracy is not power sharing. It's, it's anger about exclusion from power. Okay, we've actually we've got very many people who now want to ask questions, and I think, in fairness to Wendy, I'm just going to allow one more person, I'm sorry, it's you, Ron, <laughs> to ask a question, and hope that the rest of you are able to join us at the reception when you can put your questions directly to... Wendy, who will have to continue answering questions all night. I, I don't uh, mind if yes. you just take a couple, but it's okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks. Yes, I'm Veron Ware. Um, I have quite a short question. We've been talking more and more about containment, right? I'm thinking, what is the relationship between the wall and the camp, keeping people, because actually it's not about containment, it's keeping people out. So the wall and the camp and the prison because you referred to walls within walls, but then actually I think you gave more examples of walls between or against. Okay, so this is an important question and it's one that I haven't plumbed sufficiently. You're right, your question's so short, the, the answer should be long. Um, one of the things that distinguishes this recent spate of wall building and one of the defenses of these walls is that they are not keeping people in, they are not prisons, they're not like the Berlin Wall, they're keeping people out. And that's officially the way the US distinguishes its wall from um, hated walls and so forth. It's keeping people out so that we can um, uh, you know, remain civilized. Um, but then there are walls within walls. And then there are these walls that are imagine to keep people out that actually turn into forms of imprisonment and many people have argued that this is essentially what Israel is doing to itself. It's not just imprisoning Gaza and the West Bank, it's imprisoning itself. Um, and then there's the question of, of um, the relationship that I mentioned at the very beginning of nation state walls to a whole other set of walls that are coursing through nations that have to do with, uh, that are prison walls, um, that are gated communities, um, but that are also a whole range of security barriers and um, pass-coded networks and so forth of, 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 of walling and um, organizations of space. I want to suggest that there's an important set of relations there and that I won't talk about, but that there's also a distinctiveness to the nation-state wall or to the effort at establishing a sovereign space. And one good example of a non-nation-state wall that is nonetheless doing that are those Spanish enclaves in Morocco that I mentioned, which indeed end up operating a bit prison-like. Um, but are at the same time expressions of sovereignty um, that are different, I think, from uh, 
the expression of sovereignty uh, that that one could say via agamben is also what the prison or the camp is about. Here I break with agamben. I actually don't think sovereignty is best understood as the exercise of raw power on bare life. I don't think that gets at what the last 350 years of, of um, world order organized by nation states has really involved. I don't think it's absolutely wrong, but I think it's, it's vague and insufficient to the problem of nation state sovereignty. So I'm just kind of walking around your question, walking around in your question without answering it, and I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. I know there's a set of relationships that need to be theorized between walling enterprises within nations um, and at their borders, and I haven't done that theorization yet. Thank you for some really good questions. I mean, that's been an extraordinarily kind of elegant and uh, thoughtful lecture and then subsequent conversation. I'd like to invite everyone to uh, join us for a reception, uh, which is in the the Shaw Library, which is on the sixth floor of the main building, uh, which is just uh, three, four minutes walk from here. If any of you are uncertain where it is, just follow, follow the crowd. Um, and then can I just finally end by asking you to join me in thanking Wendy Brown. For the Thank you.